You are listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit brockportfirstbaptist.org. The second reading is found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Good morning again, everyone. <clears throat> Just a reminder about those cards you've got. If there's a burning question from today's sermon or a previous sermon, we're going to be doing a Q&A September 2nd. Um, love to get some of those questions from you. All right. <clears throat> so our beatitude for today is, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And I really want to acknowledge before we get started um, that this was a tricky sermon to write. Usually when I read a passage that's going to be the focal point of an upcoming message, I generally will have a sense, right when I read it, of a possible direction to go. Now, as I start doing my homework and actually researching the passage, oftentimes that initial idea goes right out the window. Um, but it's good to at least have something to go on from the start. But this sermon has been a bit different. Um, as we've been going through this series on the Beatitudes, I've kind of been dreading this one. I haven't known where this was going to go. And I think that's because when I hear, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, it just feels so unattainable. I mean, who can really say that they're pure, in, pure of heart? I know I can't. Maybe someone out there can, and in that case, maybe we should trade places. But there's just something that feels, there's something about that phrase, pure in heart, that feels instantly disqualifying to me. Even the reward in this one, that they will see God, sounds kind of terrifying. There's this famous story in the Bible where Moses sees God's back on top of Mount Sinai, and the experience is so powerful that when Moses comes back down the mountain, his face is glowing. I don't know if I want to see God. That sounds kind of dangerous, maybe unhealthy. Um, part of the problem is probably that I entered my teen years in the late 90s, which was the height of Christian purity culture. Has anyone ever heard of purity culture? Is that a familiar? Oh, you're so lucky. Most of you haven't. Um, so let me just say it was a really awkward time to be a teenager in the church. Um, there was a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye that was really popular. Maybe you've heard of that. This was basically a book arguing that dating was unbiblical because it could, um, it could lead to hand-holding, which just opens the door to all sorts of debauchery, um, and basically that Christian kids shouldn't be allowed to date. That was kind of the gist of this book. Um, I Kissed Dating Goodbye actually did so much damage uh, that a few years ago, the author of that book actually apologized for writing it, which is kind of commendable, I think. 
I remember going on a youth retreat when I was about 11 years old and the theme was purity. Um, all we talked about on this overnight mixed-gendered retreat with a bunch of teenagers was sex and um, how it makes you impure. And all the kids, myself included, were forced to take purity pledges. That's where you basically write this promise to Jesus that you're not going to have sex until you're married. This is at age 11, when hormones are just starting to kick in and the word sex is still something that makes you giggle when you hear it. But that's what purity meant to me at that age. And of course, a number of kids on that retreat would end up breaking those pledges years later, which led to shame, anxiety, feelings of impurity, all sorts of stuff. This is just some of the baggage I carry when I hear, blessed are the pure in heart. And unfortunately, Jesus doesn't make things much easier at first glance. Um, when it comes to purity, Jesus sets a really high bar. Later on in this chapter, in Matthew 5, verse 20, Jesus says that unless our righteousness, our purity, exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, we won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And it gets worse from there. Jesus goes into this series of teachings, it's pretty famous in, in the second half of Matthew 5, where he takes laws from the Old Testament and basically cranks them up to 11. You've heard that it was said, don't murder. But I tell you that if you are even angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. So anger is equated with murder. Great. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that if you even look at another person with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So we're pretty much all adulterers. Fantastic. And this is all capped off in verse 48, the last verse of the chapter, when Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now talk about a high bar. So what do we do with this blessing, with this teaching, with this notion of being pure in heart? Some Christian groups have responded to this teaching by embracing perfectionism, trying to be perfect. This happened with the Puritans. That's kind of where they got their name. This happened with a lot of early Baptists, our ancestors in the faith. And this happens with modern-day fundamentalists, folks who embrace legalism, judgmentalism, exclusivism, and become obsessed with their own purity to the point where they'll often cut themselves off from the rest of society and maybe even the rest of the church. But far more often, though, I think we respond to all of this by just giving up. It's just too unattainable. The bar is set too high, and so we feel defeated. We feel like we've blown it. We resign ourselves to never truly being pure of heart, and so we stop trying. Now, there's another spot in Scripture where Jesus speaks to purity in heart. It kind of parallels this one. It's Matthew 15, verses 1 to 20, page 796 in your pew Bibles. And I would highly recommend that you follow along with this one because this is kind of a long one. Uh, and I'm going to read this, and we're going to stop at a couple points to kind of unpack what Jesus is talking about. Uh, should be page 796, assuming I've actually got a pew Bible. That'd be funny if I don't. Um, but it's Matthew 15, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> Quick drink of water. All right, Matthew 15, 1. <clears throat> 
Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Pause. Pharisees and scribes. These are the people, if you you remember a couple of minutes ago, these are the people that our righteousness is supposed to exceed if we want to enter the kingdom of heaven, the scribes and the Pharisees. These are the people coming to Jesus right here. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, verse 2, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands before they eat. This is a question about purity. This is a question about outward signs of purity from that day, which was how the people of God showed to those around them that they were in, that they were religious, that they were faithful. Jesus' followers aren't doing these practices, and the scribes and Pharisees want to know why. Verse 3, Jesus answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must surely die. But you say that whoever tells father or mother whatever support you might have had for me is given to God, then that person does not need to honor their father. So for the sake of your tradition, you make void the word of God. Now pause again, because that's a little confusing. This is something Jesus is talking about that's not familiar to us today, but it was super common in his day. First century Palestine, there was not much of a social welfare state. So when people got elderly, when they got old, it was up to their children, their adult children, to take care of them. That was actually in the Jewish law. It was part of honoring your father and your mother. You took care of your parents when they got too old to take care of themselves. But kind of like today, there are people who don't have very good relationships with their parents. There are rebellious children. There are broken parent-child relationships. So there was a loophole in the law where basically, if you would take a sum of money and say, this is the money I was going to use to take care of my parents, but I vow to give this to God, you could donate that sum of money to the temple and you were legally excused from having to care for your parents. So the pockets of the temple elite got lined. You got out of your responsibility to your parents, and your parents are basically just left to fend for themselves. That's what Jesus is talking about here. That's what he's critiquing. Verse 7. You hypocrites. Isaiah prophesied rightly about you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. Then he called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it is what comes out of the mouth that defiles. Then the disciples approached and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard what you said? (laughs) Jesus answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone, they are blind guides of the blind, and if one blind person guides another, both will fall into a pit." But Peter said to him, explain this parable to us. Then Jesus said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see whatever goes into the mouth, enters the stomach, and goes out into the sewer? I'll let you think about what Jesus is talking about there. That's a great translation, by the way. That's exactly what the Greek says. Um, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this is what defiles. For out of the heart come evil intentions, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile. Now, if we had time, I'd love to just go into that and unpack it. 
Um, but let me just make a couple observations about that passage. Jesus' opponents, the scribes and Pharisees, are focused on outward displays of purity. They're so focused on outward purity that they're actually letting the really important stuff go, like following the law and actually taking care of your parents, um, as long as outward purity, as long as things look good on the outside, especially if it profits them to do so. Jesus, on the other hand, is more interested in inward purity. He's not out there judging people based on outward appearances and how well they jump through religious hoops. Jesus cares about the heart. What are your intentions? How are you living? How are you actually treating uh, your neighbor? Because purity flows from the heart. If our hearts and actions are in the wrong place, then all that outward religious stuff, it's just appearances. It's meaningless if the inward stuff isn't there. There's also an ominous tone to this passage that's really easy to miss, especially when we read it kind of out of context. Um, It's right there in verse 1 when we're told that the scribes and Pharisees come from Jerusalem. Doesn't mean much to us, but at this point in the story, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem in Matthew 15. And all of Jesus' friends are really worried about what's going to happen to Jesus when he gets there. And if you know the story, you know exactly what happens to Jesus when he gets to Jerusalem. He's going there to die. So when the text tells us that these opponents are from Jerusalem, that's foreshadowing. These scribes and Pharisees are the people that are always trying to trip Jesus up. Many of them will probably be involved in the plot to have him killed. These religious leaders were so obsessed with maintaining their own purity, with keeping up this delicate little religious system they had designed, that they totally missed the boat on Jesus. God is standing right in front of them, but they can't see it. Their obsession with superficial outward signs of purity prevents them quite literally from seeing God. Suddenly that beatitude might have a different tone to us. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. What if the true measure of one's purity isn't outward signs of perfection, but our ability to see God, to discern and recognize God's presence in our midst? We've talked about this a bit before in this series. Who is it that sees God in the Gospels? Who is it that looks at Jesus and sees the divine, that gets what he's about? It's the poor in spirit, the spiritual outcast, the spiritually bankrupt. Jesus tells us that the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. It's those who mourn, those who would have been written off by the religious establishment as cursed or under some kind of punishment by God. Jesus tells us that they will be comforted. It's the meek, the afflicted, those who cling to God because they've got nothing left to cling to. Jesus tells us that they will inherit the earth. Time and time again, the Beatitudes keep pointing us to this radical, counterintuitive surprise of the Jesus story. It's not the religious insiders, the outwardly pure, who get it. It's the outcasts, the zeros, 
Those are the ones Jesus came for. Those are the ones who see God. Forget about perfectionism. Forget about performative religion and pretending like we have it all together. The more important question, I think, is are you aware, are you clued in to where God is at work in your life and in the lives of those around you? Are you partnering with God in that work? If the answer is yes, then I think we're probably in pretty good shape on the purity question. But if the answer is no, then there might be some soul-searching to do. I, for one, see God at work in this place, in this church, in this community. I see God in your energy, in your excitement, in the way you welcome people, in the way you've all welcomed me and my family. I see God in that. I see God in many of you who sacrifice time and energy uh, to be involved in the ministries of this church. Those of you who serve, those of you who lead, those of you who help out, it's amazing, and I see God in that as well. I see God in the ways you all support each other, pray for each other, care for each other. And I also see God at work beyond the walls of our church, here in Brockport and the surrounding community. Um, I've been lucky the last couple weeks. I've had some really exciting conversations with folks from the college campus and from other churches. And I can tell you that God is at work here. I am sure of it. And in the weeks and months ahead, there are going to be new opportunities for those of us at this church to intentionally engage with this community and to partner in what God is already doing out there. Because it's exciting stuff. And I really hope you'll be able to see it. Now, if you're someone who's struggling with this, someone who struggles to see God at work in your life right now, that's okay. My only challenge to you would be to try to identify what might be standing in the way. Sometimes it's just life. Life is crazy. We get so busy. We get bogged down. We have so many things going on at once that we stop paying attention. We lose our ability to see. This happens to me all the time. This is my constant fight. Sometimes it's our own perfectionism. Sometimes we get so obsessed with our own status, our own rightness, our own purity, that it actually draws us away from the world God is at work in. We come to view the world as scary, as an enemy, as something other, and thus we can never partner with what God is actually doing there. Or maybe your vision's being blocked by some lie you've been made to believe about yourself. That you're no good. That God doesn't have a place for you. That you've broken one too many promises to Jesus, and so your purity is lost for good. If any of the above applies to you, then my prayer is that you would come to see the truth. That the Spirit of God would awaken you to God's work and God's presence in your life, because I know it's there. That you would see God working in the world around you, hear God's invitation to partner in that work, and that in so doing, you may be made pure, as your Heavenly Father is pure. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God.